Hello, you're listening to Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Conry, in the corner, swearing, making weird gurgling sounds. Hello. Roger Hart. And not making weird gurgling sounds, not swearing at me, but probably thinking, I don't know. No, you don't care, do you? I don't know where you're going with this. Hi, Hi. everyone. I don't know where he's going with this. I was going to accuse you of of thinking swear words. I've thought swear words in the past. Did you enjoy it? I did. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Why why, why are you taking this boy to task for some kind of putative thought crime? I'm not. I'm just like... The thought swears. Swearing swearing's cool. I'd recommend it. Yeah, I'd recommend both of those Mm -hmm. to children. Heroin. Um, and I do when I'm, when you know I'm talking to them. Just say swear and smoke. It'll be great. It worked for Oliver Reed, and he got a lot done. He did. He was pissed on TV a lot of the time. Yeah, well, that's probably Michael Parkinson's fault. What is Michael Parkinson's fault? Parkinson's disease, ironically. <sighs> it's a shame, though. It'd be really good if it was his fault. Not for him, and probably not for people with Parkinson's disease. I just really like the association to be there. Well, it is now. Good to know. It is now. Not biologically, but it's there in the language. I yeah. make that about 40 seconds. <laughs> this this is this has gone very wrong. Yeah, very is that hard. the worst thing I've ever said on the radio? Mm, probably not. So this week, music. But first, what have you been reading? Lucy, go first. Um, I read Silver Surfer. I read Sex Criminals. I read Hip Hop Family Tree. And I read The Wicked and the Divine, the first issue. And... Um, Oh, you read all of those, didn't you? Except yeah. Hip Hop Family Tree. Similar lineup. Didn't read the Hip Hop Family Tree, read the Fifth Beetle and the latest Chew Trade. So Silver Surfer. I kind of thrust this at both of you because I like it because I always buy Mike Alred stuff because I like his very cutesy 60s artwork style. And Silver Surfer's pretty weird and it just incorporates massive amounts of Doctor Who now for some reason. Thoughts. You can we're going. Read. We're going. Quite news night review on this. I'm okay. just going to keep talking and then say thoughts, and then you've got to disagree with me loudly. Well, you can probably guess my thoughts. You didn't like. I it didn't at like all. it at all. <laughs> it was like, do what the, the t- fuck even is this? Do it in the Tom Paulin voice. <laughs> I can't. Although I did get drunk with Tom Paulin once. Did you find it all very depressing? Yes, I was also with a PhD student who told us a long story about the time he was a depressed teenager and his parents bought him a self-help book which he flung out of the window. Man, it was that's... a really cheerful evening. Yeah. Did he not find that a little cliched? I don't think so. No? No. Well, in retrospect, probably, but at the time it presumably felt like a meaningful gesture. More, more like an archetype than a stereotype, would you say? Yeah. I think it spoke to him somewhere. That book in a tree, not the book itself, but the fact of it being in a tree and him having flung it there spoke to him, I would say. In a way that Silver Surfer did not speak to you. In a way that that was a really good segue, yeah. Thank you. Um, you. Yeah, I I just didn't... So I think possibly the fact that it was issue three didn't help. Mm. Because I came into the middle of something that looked like blistering idiocy with no context. And thus perceived it purely as blistering idiocy. I'm going to go with what she said, um, with a caveat that I found it slightly charming. And I suspect I might have enjoyed it with some context. I found it slightly charming, but the fact that it was blistering idiocy was irritating enough that I couldn't enjoy the charm. Yeah, fair. So, I liked the jokes. The thing about the garden gnome was great. That just had wonderful poise. Um, 
Yes, that was good. That was, but that to me felt like a red herring in that I read that on page two and thought, ooh, I might enjoy this. And then promptly, I didn't even know what the fuck was going on for most of it. Where, where yeah. and why? What, what was happening and why? And it seemed to be, so, and again, this, we jumped in issue three. So it seemed to be quite mocking, self-mocking of the fact that the plot it had set itself was absolute nonsense. And it did have a lightness of tone, but I also just, I just didn't really go for it. It did it knowingly, but for me it was... That made it worse, almost. It wasn't... It wasn't, this is quite self-indulgent and we're going to make fun of that. It was more, we're making fun of ourselves and being really quite poised, but I didn't like the thing that they were making fun of in the first place, and thus that added an extra layer of, I don't like this, on top. When you, when you say Mr. Convery, Doctor Who, or, you know, it, it, it's got some Doctor Who in it, do you mean running while holding hands? Do you mean the fact that um, the main character looks a bit like Benny Summerfield, or do you mean something else that I just totally failed to spot in the text? I mean that they've taken an established Marvel character that has never behaved in this way before. They've given him a human assistant who he is then showing the universe to. She's his assistant. Sort of. That would well, have been useful information. <laughs> well, no, they've, they've just met in some sort of crucible of sorts. Uh, hand-holding has been done, people have been impressed, and now they're going to explore the universe. It's basically Doctor Who. It even has uh, sort of the the big dramatic, or melodramatic, speechifying moments, although it does cop out every time it goes into those and does something stupid. Um, mm. I like the bit where he poked the guy in the face. Yeah, it goes into a big speech about how he's, you know the entire power of the universe flows through him, and then he does a Three Stooges joke, um, which I personally enjoy a lot. Basically, it was better sketch comedy than it was a story, but... it's uh, So I, I missed an issue, and I found that I was still broadly able to follow that one. But yeah, it's a little bit confusing. Other context that would have been useful for me. Um, who is the Silver Surfer and why? Yeah, it was missing from that one, wasn't it? I have no cultural context for this at all. It's a name that I know. I know vaguely what the dude looks like. What the deal is, I could yeah, not tell I, you. I did at least know that. It's... Presumably, though, you're more impressed with sex criminals. I just see. I, I like the monkey. I like the monkey better on the cover than I liked it in the comic. Mm. It had a the, the visuals of it did have a wonderful eye for nonsense. I think if I'd enjoyed it, that that pairing of doing that much loud shouting nonsense in that style with with a story that gave itself to it, I think I could have very much enjoyed it. Just something about this one. Mike Howard is an artist that I really like. So I think I've talked about some of his stuff, like Eye Zombie, before. Um, is a very consistent. Everyone's very handsome and cheekbony, and everything's drawn in a very sixty style. It's always. Um, he, he and his wife are a sort of artist colorist team and so she always does the, the stuff with half tones and very very 60s looking stuff although mm. this had a lot more complication depth to it than normal um, it had mad levels of Kirby crackle as well yeah yeah it's very very 60s um, deliberate 60s poise which I enjoy because I like old comics as well um but you people are philistines, what can I say? Um, Didn't like the surfboard joke. We're not just going to go through it line by line. But we could. But we're not. But we could. But we could. That would be poorly suited to future radio. That's true. Sex criminals. 
Alright. I enjoyed it not without reservations, but some of the back matter made up for those reservations. Oh shit, I forgot to read that. Told you it was good. Well, one, one letter in particular, um, a reader wrote in about sort of media portrayals of people with mental illness and how this wasn't necessarily a particularly good one for various reasons. Um, and the, I think the fact that they kind of listened and printed that was really good. Yeah. Basically along the lines of the, there's a kind of prevailing cultural narrative that if you have brain problems, putting like medicine is almost a failure, that it, it shuts you down or zombifies you or fundamentally alters your personality somehow, which if you do have brain problems is kind of a really harmful thing to internalise. Yes. Because the brain drugs are good. I think... So... Uh, the focus seems to have shifted to that. Like mm. That seems to be the, the fact that one of the characters is... Alternate, alternating on and off um, medicine for a raft of behavioural disorders. Mm. Including um, pooping in a flower pot. Which is, yeah. you know, is the, if you'll forgive the phrase, the, the extrusion of several of them. I'm pretty sure that's like Axis 1 in the DSM. Um, but it's... I, Maybe Axis 2, actually. <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, one thing they could do is go to the point of, you know, he finds the right medication for him and lives happily and is not sure. acting out. But I think I think given that given that it's being presented as singles though, this was a valid concern and the fact that they printed that was really, really mm. fucking good. Yeah. Because you know, we can we could predict good outcomes for the story, we could predict bad outcomes for the story, but ultimately we don't really know and then mm. paying attention to this shit is is good for from my perspective. Yeah. I, I think so. It's sort of, it feels like there's a very deliberate break from the first one and it's slowly building up to a new storyline again. Definitely notes of a key change, gear change. I don't know. Mm. It, it, a, bit of, a, bit, a bit of a second act feel. Yeah. It's like more meditative. Maybe. Almost. Insofar as pooping in a flower pot in your boss's office can ever be meditative. Insofar as that. Depends on how long you take. Can never be meditative. Yeah, but it is more subdued. It is definitely it is. a lot more subdued. I oh, but I'm. I, I don't want to. I don't know how much I want to get into this. One, one of my problems I had with the previous, with the the, with the previous run, with some of the stuff around his uh, mental problems, um, and I think we talked about this before. The kind of the, the medicalization of um, the problem of, of mental health and, and the consensus is normal and the medicalization of aberrance. Mm-hmm. So the is it oppositional disorder thing? Oppositional defiant disorder. Defiant disorder. Yeah. Which, which I believe, I don't know, if, can, is that one of the ones that adults can't actually be diagnosed with? There's, there are a couple that are kid only, but yeah. I, I need well, to read the DSM again. It's one of the more terrifying ones because it's one of the things that would go very readily to the medicalization of perfectly sensible mm. behavior. And in a society obsessed with medicalization and coercive control, uh, it, it's it's red flags and alarm bells. Yeah, and whilst and I thought sex criminals' treatment of that or treatment of his attitude toward it was broadly okay, it's still kind of being presented with rather more of a straight face than I'm sure I'm comfortable with. It's difficult to tell uh, whether it's that the character has internalized yes. it and that's right. something that hasn't mm. really been addressed yet. Then again, his consistent flower pot shitting is clearly a manifest problem. 
So. Yeah, that's a behavioural issue, mm. particularly in the workplace. I mean, Lord knows we've had poop problems in our workplace, and I think everyone I've had agrees. Them in pe- previous workplaces as well. It's a behavioural issue in the workplace. Yeah, one common factor there, dude. It's no <laughs> many common factors. There are many, many people who worked at uh, at my old workplace who are here now. So yeah, but none of them shit on the floor as much as you do. <laughs> that we know. Well, jolly good. <laughs> Glad we cleared that one up. I didn't clear it up. No, I think some of the facilities had to. <laughs> And my former employers, can I just say, as a, as a matter of some small pride, they didn't get a lot right, but when, when, when they uh, got someone to clear it up, they gave them a £20 voucher, which I thought was very... For their own products? Oh, yes. Yes. So almost very generous. It was almost generous, yeah. yeah. We're, we're B2B, though, so like a couple of hundred dollars worth of software license isn't really going to... That's it's not going to happen. No one wants to develop a bundle when they've cleaned up the bundle of something else. Oh. The poop jokes are flowing free tonight. They are, they are. They are flowing rather freely. It is, it is a scatological podcast. It is. Why? I wonder why you didn't just get focused on the flower pots instead. That would have been... You know, nice. But no, so, yeah, this issue with sex criminals, still good. Totally different. I liked it. Going somewhere. Sex Batman. Sex Batman always good. I love I love the, the idea that he might be wrong. Like it, it might be completely imaginary. I quite like that. That the guy may not be Sex Batman. There may be no Sex Batman. Mm. Are you bringing that up as an excuse to say Sex Batman <laughs> over and over again? Why would I just want to restate Sex Batman? I don't know. Why would you want to just keep saying Sex Batman? No, it's almost as though Sex Batman is fun to say. I've got problems with Sex Batman, the amount of time Sex Batman is being said. Holy Sex Batman. No one's even commented on the Sex GPS yet. Oh yes, the yeah. uh, compass. It didn't stand out for me, I guess. I just wanted to say Sex GPS. It wasn't. I wasn't really reintroducing that into the conversation. I think Sex GPS is always going to be a step down from Sex Batman in terms of... I'm trying to find a a, a sort of Tom-Tom sex joke, but it's just not coming together. Um, Best I can get is Tup-Tup, but that's too Shakespearean. Bum-Bum applies really only to particular types of relationship. I'm struggling for, you know, inclusion here. Very much enjoy Eric Moen's Anal Beats comic. I haven't read it yet. Me neither. No, it, I think it might be the latest one. It is. Did 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 you did it make you want to stick beads up your anus? I guess is what I'm saying. It made me think about getting some. Yeah. Okay. How, is it a thing you've done in the past? No, I've never used any beads. Okay. Huh, you've been reading Chew again. Yeah, yeah. It's good. You've been grumbling that it's um, lost its way. It has become flaccid. Is that, not, is not that, even semi-rigid, it's, is it's that flaccid. the word of the podcast? Are we, are we going with flaccid? Is this, is this dedicated to you were, you, were the, you were the one that said it had just gotten a little soft. I think the question is, does this podcast pass the Mullock-Entire test? Well, I, I shouldn't stand up. Will it stand up to scrutiny? Sort of rigid scrutiny? 
dick jokes. Dick jokes. Dick jokes. So the latest volume of Q is, I think, round about, this is volume eight of the trades. I think six maybe was a little bit meandery. It did feel a bit digressive. Um, this one is partly a return to form. Uh, I don't know. There's a couple of big story strands, there's a couple of big character strands, and at the beginning they were just clipping along quite nicely, and then there were some sort of slightly more digressive sections, and it did just start to feel a lot less tight, and it's tightening back up again, but I think there are going to be 10, 12 volumes worth, and I'm looking at how fast it's going now and thinking, if that's what they're shooting for, then there's going to be another disappointing slowdown in the offing. But this this feels like the penultimate. It should be the penultimate trade. It's kind of it's really heading for some conclusion. It's but, but even even despite that, it's still it is still good. It's still funny. It's still weird. Bits of it are still painful. The the stuff with um, Tony and his sister. So I mean, I I really liked it at the start as well. I found that sort of later volumes. I mean, this is not an easy thing to keep up, but it doesn't have the sort of relentless inventiveness of the yeah. earlier stuff. Um, and partly that's because they're no longer in world-building territory, but partly it's also there are so many plot strands being juggled now that it doesn't seem to... There isn't time for the really weird shit that made it fun. Could you guys remind me of the premise? Tony Chu is a uh, cop who, when he eats organic material, he picks up memories or anything associated with it. Yeah. Um, and the world then unfolds to be basically X-Men for food shit. So you've got people that can... Uh, there's a chocolate sculptor who can sculpt things that do the thing that they look like. Um, for example, there are various people who get... Um, his sister can see the future of anything she eats. Um, Does she see a lot of poop? Very possibly. Uh, the, uh, the horrifying bit in this is that she ends up um, biting her fiancé and then foresees her own imminent murder. Interesting. And that, that's kind of the backstory to this volume. Hmm. But they're trying to... Sorry, I've trampled over you. Mm-hmm. Um, the backstory to the whole thing is that there was a massive outbreak of avian f- flu, leading mm. to A, chicken being illegal, and B, the FDA being the most powerful and feared um, law enforcement agency on the planet. I see. Something else then happens which makes, um, which leads them vying for, um, vying for position for this with NASA. But there's a whole bunch of weird-ass food crime stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So the monster of the week premise is Tony Chu solving weird-ass food crime, but everyone hates him. Right. Uh, Why? He's creepy as fuck. Okay. And his boss just really has it in for him. Mm. Uh, and the art plots are <coughs> something to do with a fruit from outer space and some weird alien writing in the sky that may or may not have destroyed another civilization. The backstory for the avian flu, um, illegal trafficking of psychedelic frogs, and the uh, and the vampire, a guy with weird who can steal take other people's weird food abilities by eating them. I see. And it's kind of really budding for, it, it seems to really build into the end of the vampire story, mm-hmm. uh, whilst also bringing in the conclusions of the other bits. And I think there's going to be a fairly standard arc plot writing switch where we get the conclusion of the vampire story, but it suspends the next two mm-hmm. for a while. And I don't know, I just, I just think that's going to make it... I, I think it's lost a lot of momentum. Yes. But it is still really good. The, uh, the scene, the sequence at the end of the final issue where Tony and his partner, whose name I keep forgetting, just get really, really high. He, um, he get, in order to amplify his food powers so that he can learn, uh, 
his, his murdered sister encodes a bunch of messages about the future in her own flesh, essentially, which Tony then has to eat. Um, in order for these memories to linger, she leaves him a recipe, and the recipe is mad alien space berries and pureed hallucinogenic frogs. He, he just gets super fucking bombed, and um, the final issue is him imagining himself to be some kind of space rabbit riding around town solving crimes. Interesting. It's glorious. Also, it's got a bionic chicken. Bionic. Who's a secret agent. Yeah. And a brutal killing machine. Of chickens? Of humans? No, of anything, really. Mm. Yeah. It's good. I like the way those have become, like, <clears throat> once per volume, sort of one-note jokes as opposed to overextending the individual stories. Yeah. It's had some crossover recently with another comic called Revival, which is um, sort of... It describes itself as rural noir. Um, it's about, yeah, sort of Fargo-esque small-town crime, essentially. Um, I haven't read the crossover, but tonally they're so different. I'm keen to see what the hell they've done to make mm. that palatable to readers of both. No fucking pun intended. That's, that's like crossing like the goon and Parker. Yeah. Yeah. I'd read that. I know you would, but you're a degenerate. Yeah. So, music. Yeah, music. what is that? Series of sounds. They go in your ear holes. In a sort of pleasing arrangement. Or okay. not, if you listen to Atari Teenage Riot. So it's kind of like poetry, but for the senses I'm less interested in. I'm still hearing. You don't listen to poets, do you? No, they read it all wrong. Well, they might do, I'm worried. Sometimes they read it right. Not often. I heard, oh gosh, who wrote, um... On the Death My Mother Owed to Sears Roebuck? Ed Dawn. Um, I found a recording of him reading On the Death My Mother Owed to Sears Roebuck and it just blew my mind how different it was to the way I heard it in my head. Mm. It's a beautiful poem. Have you, have you, no, I don't know it. Please, please um, send it to me. He's an early 20th century, uh, sorry, mid 20th century American guy, so it's mm. kind of Dust Bowl stuff. Awesome. That is highly aligned with my interests. So, music. So, we've all read um, The Wicked and Divine, and mm. we are prone to prattling on about Gillian McKelvey quite a lot because they're about as mainstream as any of our tastes are likely to get and collide in any given way. Yeah, pretty talented folk. And talented folk, yes. Talented folk. I actually badgered um, Kieran Gillen on Twitter for recommendations for um, comics about music. I know you did. You're a brazen um, hussy. Um, I couldn't track down the particular issue of, um, issue of Moon Knight he suggested annoying you, but... Uh... No. No. Annoyingly, my Marvel Unlimited subscription does not cover it. So this, this was because when I was thinking about... Um, when we said we were going to think about music, I... One, I, I, I'm aware of a lot of stuff set around the music business. Wicked and Divine does this. Fifth Beetle, which you and I read, kind of does this. All, you know, has musicians as characters. I, knew, I was going to pick up that um, biography of John Coltrane. Again, didn't get around to that. There's, um, there's a lot of music uh, musicians in um, Black Sad. There's also... Yeah. Um, what else did I read recently? Yes, uh, Stuck Rubber Baby has a mm -hmm. big thing about jazz and blues. And uh, protest songs. Yes, protest songs. So, but what I haven't... What I'm not aware of maybe you guys are, I don't know, is stuff that handles kind of musical experience or music as experience. 
particularly well. So there's, there's an interesting potential tension, I think, between comics as a very visual medium and an interesting hybrid dynamic static visual medium. Comics are like static physical objects, but there is, a, there is very much a flow to them and a flow of experience. But it strikes me as potentially quite hard for comics to make a sensory appeal to the auditory in any dynamic way. And comics trying to do auditory experience outside the scope of sound effects or, you know, little notes floating around the room. There's one of the worst bits of... Well, no, it's not one of the worst. One of the most heavy-handed bits of imagery mm. in this one summer, which I was talking about last time, is just the two kids thrashing around and dancing while big, outsized, cartoony notes scatter around mm. the room. And that captures the kind of... the sort of zingy, emotional, kind of cartoonish end of it quite well, but doesn't really... I don't know, maybe that is the best you can do. Maybe there are other things. But I think there's potentially maybe a huge tension between the affordances of comics as a medium and the sensory apparatus or the sensory inputs you need to afford in order to process the musical. And I don't know if any comics negotiate that well. Um, or maybe I'm talking shit. So one that I would suggest handles it reasonably well, although it's a single trick, um, is Hip Hop Family Tree. Um, because it's all designed as though it's four-color printing process. It's designed to look like a comic from the 70s. Um, and it, when you have sort of fight, rap battles and, and uh, big concerts, the color plates come out of sync um, mm. and sort of it implies sort of basically heavy bass and loud volume mm -hmm. um, because everything's shaken in that way. Um, and I thought that was quite effective for what it was trying to do, which is wall of noise, effectively. I mean, you've read that. I have read yeah. that. What did, does that, does it play out like that? Does it, it does, yeah, that, that, that very much works. Um, that obviously is one small bit of musical experience. Um, There's a thing you see a lot, which is kind of sound, sometimes done as a scatter of notes, sometimes done as something more abstract and sweet, just winding around people in a room. That's a reasonably common image. I think Blackside employs that one. Yeah, I think uh, and I can, Parker I can, does that as well. I can get that. I can, I can buy into that. Um, is it possible that you... Forgive me if I'm doing armchair psychology mm -hmm. at you, but the fact that... So for me, that is just a visual representation of something I'm intimately familiar with mm. as a feeling, and maybe if you're less so, then it looks mm. more clunky. Maybe. Music is a really weird cultural blind spot for me. Mm. I just, I don't... I cannot remember a time that it's made me feel in the way that people, really, that people who write really well about music feel about it. Which is not to say I don't care about it, it's not to say it doesn't hold power for me, but I've never had the kind of high amplitude experience that the devotees praise. Mm. Clearly I haven't been listening to enough Nickelback. None of us have been listening to enough Nickelback. I've listened to enough, which is none. I, I, I had a moment of absolute visceral disgust uh, at Avril Lavigne playing in the supermarket the other day. Um, <laughs> Talking of Canadians, no one likes. <laughs> <laughs> Just the most tepid, irritating, whiny, stupid children being wise beyond their years bullshit. 
And it got me to the point of thinking, this is actually the worst thing anyone's ever done. Like people, quite a lot of people spent a lot of time and money making this record and promoting it. And then there was just an artificial record scratch noise dropped in. There's like no, there's, there's nothing's being mixed. There was just a record scratch noise because fuck it, why not? And it was the most, I think the single most charmless thing anyone has ever fucking done. I used to feel like that when I worked at Borders and I would occasionally have to put out copies of Heat. I don't know why it was Heat in particular that did this to me. There are far worse examples, but I think it's the, hyper, the superficially high production values of the cover leading mm. into the really bad production values of the inner pages. But I would just put it on the shelf and feel this shiver of disgust at the sheer amount of human endeavour, both the manifest supply chain stuff and also the technological progress that had brought us to this point. The, the Well, really, the social structures that forced you yeah. to be in a position to be putting it on the shelf as well, presumably. Yeah, but kind of just the... the this, this, this thing was an instantiation of massive human progress and complexity and also failure. And it was so shit. Yeah. Yeah. I just... I got quite upset by that sometimes. Think of all the things we can make and yet we made this. Yeah. The glossies didn't bother me as much because I think the disconnect in the paper quality didn't kind of jar me quite so somatically. Got the time, shouted ghostly Mr. Mutton Chops. It's probably one of my favourite things from the uh, Take a Break special ghost edition cover. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, that's um, that's a story someone sold to a paper for really not a lot of probably money in the grand scheme money, of things. No. Probably maybe a hundred quid if they're lucky. So we've established that music, when displayed in, in the form of, of its dark avatar, Royal Bean, can disgust us at the state of the human race. Yes. Music is not necessarily a force for good. I'm sure there are times when it's it's made me very happy as well, but I don't remember I'm those not, times I, because I, I was think you've drunk. Ever been that happy. I've been I've been happy. I've just been pissed at the same time. That's quite sad. You know where we keep the beer. It was right? a lie. It was a joke. <laughs> I do know where the beer is, and I would like everyone to know that it's still there. I haven't drunk any of it. It's not inside you. No, it's not inside me. That's good. So. <laughs> Going back to Roger and his representations of music, um, Paul Pope does it quite well, I think, in that he generally blends sound and movement together anyway. Um, so particularly in things like 100%, where there's a lot of stuff set around um, a club and there are sections set around um, a guy trying to produce a, an orchestra of finely tuned tea kettles. Um, there are some genuinely great evocative moments around that and around um, sound and music. So that's another way of handling it that probably sort of comes close to your dreaded wavering notes wrapping around people. I guess I was sort of hoping for something like sort of pizza dog but for noises. I don't know how you can do that. No, the trouble is that musical notation is pizza dog for noises. Yeah. That, is, that is the abstraction of information. Yeah. And I can't totally read that, so... And that's okay. Mm. I used to be able to ish. Got taught a lot of music theory at um, boarding school. It's a skill I'm incredibly glad I learnt at five years old without realising, because trying to do the stuff I like to do now without having done that would be a lot harder. Mm. I mean, this is maybe a bit of a distraction, because I'm just sort of... I'm I'm throwing out a bit of a... Exactly a straw man, but a sort of artificial objection based on not having read anything. So I think it's, I mean, it's a reasonable point. Stuff like the, the Fifth Beatle sort of relies on you being familiar with the music as it is. Um, well, the Fifth Beatle is completely predicated on the fact that you care more about um, the 
Beatles as a fandom, then like it, it's a it's it's set in the the minutiae of the history of something it presupposes you find interesting. Probably, I didn't struggle for that. I'm not really a fan of the Beatles, but I found the stuff around Brian Epstein's life in that interesting. Oh, I albeit think not well written. The yeah, well, I, I I personally thought that the the bits it kind of told the the stuff about queer aliena- alienation in in an, in an era of supposed sexual freedom was far more interesting than the bit about the Beatles or or the the bit about being a slightly outre um, music manager. Mm. I said the 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 fifth, the fifth Beatle kind of as the stuff in the in the back matter tells us grew out of this the author's. Um, MBA thesis or some sort of case study. He was interested in Epstein's work as a, as a manager and, um, and kind of how that shook out commercially. And do you know what? I think I'd have found that interesting. It would have been problematic as a piece of business research because of the problem you get with studying outliers, a kind of really magnified version of survivor bias. But mm-hmm. Hence all the bullshit books about Jack Welch. But it's... Um, I would have liked to read that and I would have liked to read the thing about... Um, yeah, queer queer exclusion in, in in a context of notional sexual freedom. The weird half-assed compromise that also happened to be about a band that I find at best indifferent. So there was. A- so I don't mean they weren't good. People get upset about that. Of course, they're very talented. It just does nothing for me. But then we've established that no music does anything for you, and uh, oh, you can't even bring yourself to you know work yourself into. A, Tearful frenzy at Avril Lavigne playing in the co-op. <laughs> One of the fundamental pieces of universal human experience, and you're denying yourself that. Yeah. On your the knees in the co-op. I used, I used to get very upset at Borders when our manager used to put on Katie Tunstall. Yeah, that's gonna that, be a problem. Is that a hostile working environment oh, legally? I so. Like Katie Tunstall at quarter to nine on a Wednesday evening was was. Probably the, that was that was some of the darker times of my soul. It's okay. You went and drank a lot of cheap wine immediately. I did. This is very true. So I think so. Obviously, none of us have read everything that features music. Um, no. So I mean, there's, there's there's absolutely tons of stuff tons of stuff out there. So there's stuff like Josie and the Pussycats, which is just yeah, as you say, like notes in the air, sing song indications around the dialogue and that sort of thing. I'm not asserting that that's a bad thing. No, but I don't think there's there's no sort of big transcendental uh, visual visual moment does music well. Um, and probably that's because that's not how the brain works. Possibly. I think there's just various tabs at it and they work better or worse for you. Um, it's a different processing structure yeah. to visual information. Trying to replicate that is extremely difficult. Yeah, well, there are lots of interesting comics about music. Mm. There are really quite a lot. I mean, so we've, you and I have read Hip Hop Family Tree, which is very much a straight up history of early hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a really odd style. It's really, really weird. Um, in that it's very matter of fact, but then sort of gets goes off down weird, excitable tangents as well. It, so, I mean, you described the guy when you met him as a big fan, essentially, who's kind of yeah. made this his work, and it very much felt like he was chasing the things he found shiny. It was quite choppy in that way, and at times hard to follow. Yeah. 
Um, so it was. It kind of felt like a lot of interesting snippets from the history of hip hop rather than a chronology. So excitable in quite a tangible way. Yeah, I think so. A lot of very enthusiastic, generally. Fun. Yeah. And that's kind of exactly what I wanted from it. Oh. That's that's not to say the one thing I found problematic about it. So I, I know virtually nothing about hip hop. I, I had a brief flirtation with it as a young teenager, mm. and you can imagine how ridiculous that much of it must have looked. Did he have really baggy trousers? Oh no, I didn't. I I wasn't quite so grotesquely appropriative. I I was self aware enough not to try that, but there was something slightly ridiculous about fourteen year old me really, really fucking going for bits of hip hop. Look good in a pair of salt and pepper dungarees and a big sort of comb over blonde sweep. I am less convinced, but I really don't know much about it. Having taken a very brief sort of passing interest thing, I think this is something I should read because mm. it's starting to learn more about. Yeah, so this is only the first part of five, I think, planned volumes. Are they still all online? I yeah. Think. Okay. Yeah, they're all online at boingboing.net, mm-hmm. um, and they're being gathered into gigantic oversized collections by Fantagraphics, and they look really cool. Oh, cool. Um, it was really big. Yeah. Um, and it just it sort of plays a lot of stuff from the time as well. It, so it's it's done as a comic from the time, and so it plays with sort of Marvel House style of that time and yeah. does stuff around sort of collectible cards and things like that. Mm. Um, so it never sort of moves out of the late 70s, early 80s in the way that it's presented, which is really quite nice. Um, but then you have... So that's basically literal, this is what happened. Um, and... Then at the very far end of the scale, you've got something like Phonogram. Yeah. Um, Which is about fandom more than it's about the music. But, yeah. So the bands themselves are prominently absent. Lyrics are snatches, reinterpreted as something more cabalistic. So you have on one end of the spectrum, here's what happened, hip-hop, family tree, and then Phonogram is more of the, here's how this made me feel? I think so. It's, yeah. I think the way, that, the way that Gunn described it is, it's not even those particular songs. It's just how people react to music, how people react to music in social settings. So, I mean, Phonogram um, 1 is about calls. <sighs> one of the things it's about is is the identity that Cole has built himself out of the trappings of Britpop coming, mm. coming unglued. I can't remember if you read it. I haven't read it. No, I want um, to. And him trying to negotiate whether or not the time for that has come and whether he can find something else, whether he wants to, whether he should. So, I mean... There are bits of Phonogram 1, certainly, that are more strongly about self in fandom, fandom through self and vice versa, than they are anything at all to do with music. And bits of them are about music, for sure. 2 is maybe a bit more diverse in its approach, but also kind of more definitely yeah. more about it's more people than music. Um, and then one of the things he said in, is it a blog post or was it in the Back Matter to the First Wicked Divine? I think it might be the First Wicked Divine, that, um, that then the that we can divine is more is more about create about creators than the listeners it's it's not mm. set in fandom it's set in some of the weird moments around creation of music um so we should probably um expand upon it for those who haven't read it there basically it's um every 90 years is it 1991 like every, every not a round number but a very large but, but a large number under 100 of years um, the gods, some section of them, um, are incarnated as teenage pop, pop idols. Yeah. And they get two years on Earth and then they uh, die horribly. Yes. Um, and you sort of see this happening with the 1920s Jazz Age versions and then it cuts to the present day. 
um, with the gods starting to re-emerge. And it's beautiful and it's very McKelvey. I mean, mm. semi-deific, attractive young people in... Really nice colours. In really nice colours is a thing he does well, along with everything else. I mean, i just very talented. Um, I guess, but, um, to be fair, credit where it's due, it's Matt Clayton on colours. Mm, yeah. Yes, of course. Um, is it? So it Matt Wilson. Matt Wilson, sorry, I'm confusing Matt Wilson and Clayton Cowles, who's the letterer. Mm. Matt Wilson on mm. colours. Um, and again, good. Um, wonderful power composition, some of them. Less of the um, double page, page spread fireworks, but a lot of good stuff. The recurring one, two, three, four thing is playing quite nicely. Yes. Um, yeah, there's just. So obviously, this is the first, the first issue, and it's world building and it's set up. Um, but already there are lots of nice little, it feels very designed, there are a lot of sort of big interstitial pages which tell you something if you stop mm. to look at them. There are the sort of the repeated um, one, two, three, fours, as you say, and sometimes yeah. those are just massive on the mm. page, gigantic. I like the um, sort of little icons for the individual gods and then the 1920s versions of them. This was, this was, I'm a sucker for that kind of thing, that was very nice. Yeah, and then you have things like people using finger clicks yeah. as... Uh, you know, that's how magic works yeah. in this world. Um, it's got one of the best exploding head panels I've seen in a long time. It's true, that was some fine head explosion. A lot of exploding heads. A couple um, of little problems. I mean, yeah. there's a whole, there's a big pointing to it isn't necessarily the same as dealing with it moment where I, I'm thinking I kind of trust them to deal with it, but... Which is, I mean, it's stuff that's been the talked about online, which is... The yeah. appropriation stuff. They've acknowledged it, which means that it's... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, one of, the, one of the characters is... Um, yeah, is... is uh, Amaterasu? Um, mm. A Shinto um, Sun and... Is it Sun and War God? I believe so. There are some... It's a, 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 kind, it's a, a bit, kind of... It, yeah, Shinto Sun God of some kind. I think there's some war. So she's paired with the other one, Suzanne Namito. Suzanne is, uh, yeah, the brother. Um, who also appears in um, Season of Mists. In Simon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I can't remember what their other aspects are, but there's Sun and Storm, and then they've got some other, other aspects. Uh, Suzanne is kind of a trickstery fuck up in a lot mm. of the stories. But I don't know what they're going to do with that. Gets absolutely shat on in Sandman. Yeah. Um, but this is so a lot. Of, a lot of the other things that we've looked at don't really focus on pop stars, which is quite indicative of our tastes, perhaps. I don't know because I don't. I don't think there are that many things out there that that really do. I mean, there's obviously mm. there's the biographical stuff. Um, I think there are about three or four different comic biographies of Johnny Cash. Um, probably differing degrees of truthfulness in them, the sort of further away you get from... Uh, His management? Him, yes, uh, and him being alive. Hmm. Um, there's a very nice thing in... Sorry, this just popped into my head, but in, in Wicked and Divine. So there's... If you're... This, this is the gods as pop stars, and they're presumably, therefore, um, in on some level, transcendently good pop stars. Yes. And when you're trying to deal with transcendently good art, at some point you um, you have... Well, 
it's quite hard to get out of having to actually try and create some. So this this is my. Have you ever seen Slings and Arrows? Uh, a Canadian TV Canadian show. Canadian sitcom about... about putting on Shakespeare. A bunch of fuck ups putting on Shakespeare. And every now and then, at the climax of each of each season, they have to do some transcendently good Shakespeare. And unfortunately, they're just not up to it. And this is one of the things that really lets down the show because they're meant to the character the characters are meant to be good at it, but they're just these right. are really good sitcom actors, and they cannot fucking do Hamlet. Um, and you have this, uh, the, all of the writer episodes of, of, of Doctor Who suffer this problem tremendously, that the, the fucking Shakespeare one is just miserable because they need Shakespeare to do something horrendously profound, and the writers of Doctor Who are not really going to touch that. Um, Them not being Shakespeare yes. and whatnot. And I know this sounds like me being a sniffy week, and I am, but it's a thing. Uh, and so far, and I suspect in an ongoing level, Gillan knows enough about pop and knows enough about cultural appreciation of pop that he's not... I suspect we're never going to hear the lyrics to any of their songs. So it certainly hasn't been the case so far. You just sort of... There's, there's a concert, you see the character on stage, and you see people basically histrionic and fainting. Yeah, we'll hear um, about how it makes people feel, but we'll never get the thing, because I think he's smart enough not to set, it, not set himself up for that one. But yeah, it, 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 I, but I, I liked that it did that. I like that. So when Amaterasu is, is singing, and what's, what's the phrase? Something along the lines of "She looks at the guy next to me, and he just passes out with just dribbling from his jeans." Yes, um, I, that kind of the intensity of the intensity of feeling thing. I, I, I kind of I kind of like that as a as a way of ducking it. It'll be interesting to see where that goes because sort of it. So there is an outside of character which I was not expecting, mm-hmm. um, but then I suppose it's very very hard to do, sort of, very uh, affected, um, pop star and sort of Bowie style, um, sort of Florence and the Machine style, which is what they've been riffing on so far. That sort of degree of affectation, um, without having someone ostensibly normal to. Be the react to it, yeah. yeah. There are a few ways you could do it. You could wrote because there. I mean, there so far the gods that we've seen are in different, or at least not massively well aligned musical genres, and you could just rotate them through each other's worlds as a contrast medium. This is true, but then they all know each other and have known each other since the dawn mm. of whenever this started, and so on. Yeah. Even though they are in different human bodies and are therefore different in a sense. And that's going to be something um, interesting to come back to. Yeah. They've, they've handled that quite interestingly as well, because there's been some stuff... There are some moments where it's very on the nose, but you sort of... Yeah. I got the sense that that was the character not being as smart as they thought they were. Um, like there's, some bits, partic- there's some bits particularly with um, Lucy, who is the mm. Lucifer um, character, being very, very smug, but it does come across as very, very smug, and then it's immediately contrasted with not having a fucking clue what's going on. Yeah. Via yeah. the medium of exploding heads. Yeah. So, I kind of thought you probably wouldn't like it, is that true? That is true. Well, I did not like it, it just didn't quite work for me. Um, I think the the on-the-noseness, there was not enough context to the on-the-noseness to make me give them the benefit of the doubt that it was meant to be knowing. Um, Bits of the dialogue felt, again, kind of on the same theme, a little bit too, here's some exposition that we're saying. 
it didn't entirely come together. It wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be, which is my problem and not anyone else's problem. Mm. And I guess, and again, this is probably also my problem, but the thing of, you know, that transcendent experience, the guy passing out as he jizzes mm. his pants. Not to that extent. It ex- sounds transcendent when you say it like that. It doesn't does, it? doesn't it? Not, um, not to that extent, but I've had those experiences at music events. And the fact that the way, the fact that the way that was portrayed in the comic didn't immediately bring me back to that feeling made it feel kind of a bit cheap and a bit surface and a bit glister rather than gold. I think this is a thing that I'm, I'm going to keep reading and I'm going to see how it plays out and I'm going to see... It's, it's an issue one, it's hard to tell the depth of the story from that. Yeah. But it was it was more on the surface and more on the nose than I was hoping or expecting. It was ludicrously pretty, though. So I, I, I think I probably enjoyed it more than anyone. Um, oh, I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, but we have a very short podcast if all of the discussion was just... Well, one of the, one of the problems, and this isn't really a problem, is that... Saga kind of set the gold standard for an opening issue. Like, it was so good at not feeling expository. Um, I'm okay with well done exposition. I am as well, but I am always happier if it's well hidden. Um, and I think there have been a, there have been a couple of things recently where the exposition's been very very good from the start and very very. Hidden, you have a sense of sense of the world and sense of what's going on. That it doesn't need to stop and have like so. Let's be honest. The journalist character, at least in this issue, is a sounding board hmm. um, for the girls justifying themselves themselves, and then her shouting about this is what's been happening. Hmm. I I can't make up my mind whether I want to see her again. I think she she's could, she could, she could be interesting. Um, it's an interesting device for trying to establish almost the objective truth of a universe, though. Mm. And, well, yeah, I when, don't know where I'm going with this. When you're talking in... Well, no, I think, I think you're on something there, because it is sort of... It's all set up in religious terms. Mm. She's the arch-sceptic, and then you've got Laura, the other character, is the true believer. And mm. if our every man is going to be a true believer, then, then it is nice to have a frame of reference for... It's nice the that the, outside the, window. the frame of reference seemed to dial it up to Richard Dawkins, <laughs> if you see what I mean. As in, I I prefer my frames of reference when a thing is veering to one end of a possible mm. spectrum within itself to be more on the less polemical, more on the neutral end of things. Yeah. As in, I, I, preferred, I would have preferred, for instance, gentle scepticism rather than... Well, somewhere between gentle scepticism and the outright flamethrower that we got. And the, there are lots she of ways to be Laurie Penny, wasn't she? I thought she looked like Cole. There is that. I think there was definitely a bit of Laurie Penny in there. And Gillen's used Laurie Penny as before in Iron Man. Um, if she's meant to be Laurie Penny, then I kind of feel bad for Laurie Penny. I think she's yeah. physically meant to be Laurie I Penny. Did, yeah, sure. she didn't read like um, Laurie Penny. Um, there, there are loads of other ways you could have done that. Mm. Um, some better, some worse. The most cliche ones bringing to mind would be like parents at the kid protagonist's breakfast table mm. bickering about whether this is all for real or not. Well, I think this is it's but, a thing that Transmetropolitan does extremely mm. well in the sort of, you know, the definitely not sane but closest to a sane voice of reason you've got is stuck in a totally bizarre world 
Mm-hmm. And, and it play it plays the tone exactly on the line, and that's it's a good balance. Whereas this this felt out of whack with itself. See, I was going to bring up Transmet as something that perhaps didn't start brilliantly, um, just because the very first issue going on that, and I mean it became great. The whole series is great on the whole. The first issue is a whole bunch of Hunter S. Thompson quotes stuck together. Yes, I guess I read it as a trade, and thus I got mm. the benefit of the momentum of the beginning of the series, which you wouldn't if you'd read it as singles. Yeah, and I think I think I'm. I guess the fact that we're reading more singles is making me think more about those and trades and the essentially the trade offs you make yeah. when yeah. consuming in either format. I okay, so that's something I didn't like about the beginning of the vine, uh, which was that this was a single. I mean, mm. this definitely felt like something I would have far rather have consumed as the trays. Um, that's, so, that's not... It's interesting that the same, <clears throat> the same creative team have sort of done something very, very posed in order to make singles work as individual reading material with Phonogram Volume 2, yeah. which is the, sort of the same story from six different points of view and the individual ones all stack up as stories in and of themselves. Mm. Even while the, the sort of mm. the reasonably complex overarching story actually quite complex and um, holds together, but it's yeah okay. It doesn't completely finish, but apart from for two of the characters, yeah, well, it's a complex timeline. The it's not really totally one story. No, but it's well, it's. Just, it's the story of one night. Yes. Um, there Sorry, are, I'm there, probably nitpicking. There are only two people that have sort of... There are two characters who were introduced in that mm-hmm. volume who have sort of start-to-finish storylines in that mm-hmm. volume yeah. as well. Um, neither of which are particularly nice. Um, but, yeah, it's something It's something I think we've, we've talked about a few times. I'm getting quite annoyed with reading singles I would rather read trades more mm. than anything I don't but at the same time we've got the sort of the industry effectively demands that reading well, reading demands that they be allowed to make money twice does that I don't um, have the economics actually stack up for that um, that's uh, to me who again I have no understanding of the economics but that's sort of what it looks like I understand the oh, whole sure. proof of concept thing but no, it, it absolutely looks like that and it's a way of um, offloading a lot of risk and for the successful titles it totally is making money twice what I don't sorry I should clarify what I don't know is whether we get more comics overall um, or more good comics overall from because this because people are willing to take more risk at the beginning so, uh, yeah. it's less risky to you don't have to mm-hmm. put everything into a trade that might flop yeah, yeah. I, and I so I, I don't I don't know how the economics stack up um, I don't know whether the whether making money twice as it is is the price we pay for getting some of the things once at all I, I don't know how it stacks up mm. um, well it's still part of the publishing industry and the publishing industry is risk averse but it seems and dying kind of cra- well exactly but it does seem crazy that we're tied into a a publishing uh, strategy that comes from the newsstands of the 1930s, mm. which don't exist anymore. Or the continuous delivery model of software development. I was going to say. It's ship like, early, it's, ship um, often. But that's kind of what it is, right? It's not wildly dissimilar to, dissimilar to an agile cycle. Yeah, it is it? Is to, the ex- to an extent, but then you don't have 
you're not iterating on something. You're ending up with a lot of little things mm. on their own. Sure, it's it's sh- it's shipping often. It's not iterating. You know? I'm assuming. Um, are singles generally a run of singles, a plot arc that has already been drawn and written by the time the singles are released? No. Okay. Sometimes, usually not. Often written. Sure. Very rarely drawn in, t- in that time. Yeah, sorry. Yes, drawn will. So you'll have a le- usually you'll have a massive lead time on the writing. Mm-hmm. Something will be rough. Will be roughed out. Let maybe a six-issue story arc. People will know roughly where it's going, and then the right there'll be what depending on the working practice of the team, yeah. a one or two issue lead from the writing on the mm-hmm. yeah. On the it, it does vary, but um, generally, generally not the case. And so partly it's like network TV; it's ongoing, and see if something's being written as it's being shot, for example. Yeah, I, I I don't have the narrative attention span for singles. I can I like taking a, pl- a plot as a chunk. Yeah. rather than trying to remember what happened. So with Sex mm. Criminals, I genuinely can't remember really what happened in the last ones. I sort of got a vague feel for what the plot arc was, but couldn't tell you the details. So it also means that you've got particularly unusual narrative structures that don't mm. necessarily work. Um, mm. So when you're trying to do you know, something that's only really going to be about 100 pages when you've stripped the adverts out... Mm. Um, and you have to have a cliffhanger every 20 pages. Yes, it doesn't flow over the joins particularly no. well in the trade. No, exactly. Whereas other stories just aren't suited to being split into 10, just, 20 pages a week. Yeah. It also, yeah, well, some of them are. And there's, there's people who get around it, like um, the Scott Pilgrim stories, which were published as books straight away, for example. Mm. They didn't have to go through it. Um, and a lot of the stuff that was on... Like, it seems almost insane now to imagine Sandman as single issues, even though there's lots mm. of mm. short stories. It's sort of very much thought of as the trades. Mm. Um, and that's something that was reasonably successful in that format. But it does feel... It feels odd that a company like Image would be requiring everyone to publish singles. And they've sort of... They've done some tentative things, like they've done some double size issues, which are slightly nicer printing and things like that that are one-offs, mm. sort of tentative toe in the water of a slightly different model. but And the Wicked Divine Single was a lovely object. Um, yeah. The cover design was well done. The the way they arranged, like, th- there were some very nice publishing choices, mm-hmm. um, shifting the credits to the back, the both of the covers being, the front and rear covers being kind of art objects, mm-hmm. the sort of designiness of it. Um, the fact that Image let you run really light on adverts and have them all at the end if you're going to have them is, mm-hmm. is, a, is a massive be- benefit there. There is also the problem in that the retail market has to support the publishers and the publishers have to support the retail market. And given that at least for things that are not published in book form, it's a niche market, that makes it very tricky to divest Mm. because effectively your main supporters, even if let's say a major publisher did want to publish fewer singles and go straight to trades for more things. DC do it occasionally, to be fair to them. They're shit, but they do do it. Um, You're effectively cutting out a revenue stream for an already harried series of retailers. And And you're cutting out... You're doing stuff to a very strange distribution model, so the diamond tie-in somewhat distorts the economics of this situation. Yeah, so this is... I mean, diamond... You don't. Are you familiar with Diamond? No. They're the main distributor of comics. Mm. Um, 
And they have a monopoly on everything, but they also have a distribution model, which means the more you order, the cheaper it gets. Um, and in the mid-90s, Marvel, Marvel left this distribution model, did their own thing, and a shitload of comic stores went out, out of business because they were no longer getting good enough market margins anymore because Marvel stuff was separate. Mm-hmm. Um, so Diamond had a monstrous amount of logistics and sort of short order stuff. And they were doing the supply yeah. chain end. Yeah, so they, they, for a small comic store, having the kind of supply chain muscle that Diamond provides you mm-hmm. with kind of enables, although you, you sometimes get fucked. You know, it's, sure. it's not it's not a beautiful, loving relationship. Of course, no monopoly is. But it enables certain things, and that's quite tied into the singles model. So there are weird, distortive pressures on um, on the industry. Strange business. Jumping back to music, um, you read uh, the Carter family. Biography. I did a while ago. Yeah, I had some thoughts about it. I wrote them on a blog. You should probably go and read it. I can't wholeheartedly endorse it because I haven't read it for about a year, and it might be shit. <laughs> but it's on the internet. But it's on the internet, and you can find it. Why is it country music that gets so many biographies? Um, I, I don't, think don't associate it... country fans with being comics fans. Two I'm things. Like I think I can't speak to the comics fan, country fan intersection although they're both broadly big american things there must be some overlap there i think country music gets a lot of attention for two reasons one is because it's kind of glitzy and glamorous and has a somewhat checkered history and two because of the in really interesting kind of social stuff going on around there a lot of the early country music came out of extreme poverty out of folk traditions and it's it's the it's the heroic rise of the poor guy almost into the kind of 60s onwards, very rhinestone very polished, very money-making country machine. But the kind yeah. of... You get the, a bit the of simple origins. Yeah. Because the Carter family, it's Don't Forget This Song. Don't it? Forget This Song. And it's about sort of the Carter family as archivists, as well as mm. the sort of the interpersonal stuff. Yes, they, they sort of began by collecting the folk songs of the region they were from just as they overheard them and that sort of turned into Appalachia? Yeah, I think so. Um, that turned into performing them, which kind of turned into performing them on the radio and lots of, I guess in the beginning also there was the sense of these people are recording our oral tradition and that's really quite exciting because recording is, you know, a shiny new expensive thing. Um, which then I guess moves on to we are now perpetuating our own oral tradition by continuing to record it, by continuing to write and innovate in that style. It's a very, it feels like a very community-based thing, more so than a lot of the more sort of solo singer songwritery stuff. Yeah. Was there any of the, um, in recording it, these people are somehow either ossifying or, for that matter, owning and exploiting our tradition? There was certainly plenty of the kind of gently, anecdotally getting shafted by the music industry, but in the kind of generic terms in which pretty much everyone from the sort of 20s onwards was getting shafted by the music Mm. industry, particularly when it was not that well regulated. I won't say it's necessarily better now, it's just a different kind of shafting. Mm. Whereas then it was very much a case of, we promise to pay you lots of money, you make us a record, we make a lot of money off the record and send you a check for $100 kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah, not a, not a huge amount of the cultural appropriation stuff. I wonder if that's. I wonder if it's because the origins are sort of 
so many generations ago that we've forgotten it was an appropriation. I wonder if it's because the people who were appropriated were broadly white and white people don't tend to think in terms of appropriation of their own culture by other white people, even when it's to make money from. I don't know if that's true or not. That's a theory that just occurred to me. But, but you can then continue from that into the uh, Carter Cash years mm. through one of the many... Johnny Cash autobiographies, including the beautiful ones, uh, published by his management, where he's definitely not on drugs on or in drugs prison and, and full of booze. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely not being a bad husband. No, no, basically being a nice person. Mm. And given to understand, he was not. I think he was a mixed and troubled person, like many of us are. Mm. I believe he was human and in an industry that wanted to make a saint of him. Mm, yeah. And that's a really fucking hard thing to live up to. Yeah. It turns people to booze and drugs and prison generally. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time he was in prison, he was just visiting. Mm. Just having a bit of a sing. That's true. He didn't actually shoot a man in Reno just to watch him die. That's, that's just a song as well. He thought about it. Is he the did thing. think about it. He has a lot, lot of songs about, about thinking about killing people. Yeah. Um, I Hung My Head, which is just him thinking about shooting someone off his horse and then going to jail for it. Yeah. A lot of thinking about murders. Yeah. Yeah. Someone needs to get on doing a Nick Cave comic. I mean, that would be creepy as fuck, but... Is there not already one? There must be. There's the Krent Abel one. I think that's what I was talking about. <laughs> that's that's not really... That's not really a Nick Cave comic. It's not really biographical in the sense that Nick Cave does not, to the best of my knowledge, fornicate with dogs. Nor does <laughs> to he the run, best of your knowledge. Nor does he run a factory that makes cheese out of dog semen. Oh. He might, Spoilers. <laughs> He's a weird dude. He's done a lot of bad things. He might. I can't believe we've forgotten Crand Abel. His his stuff is just genuinely appalling, but it's generally about Dog Cheese about, Cheese. About music. Dog Cheese um, Cheese. Because for a while his cartoons were run in a, in a musical paper and Which one? Um The Stool Pigeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this has been collected into the Big Book of Mischief, which is just Kanye West and Morrissey and uh Alison Goldfrapp and a bunch of other people uh, dying in horrible ways. Oh, yeah, they had one of those in Comics Unmasked, didn't they? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes, the one about Pete <laughs> Doherty and the troublesome heroin turd. <laughs> Tell me more of this troublesome turd. This is in the British Library. No, you should... Um, that was very Shakespearean. Thank you. I tried. <laughs> um, if, if you have a, a capacity for vulgar humour, I can highly recommend that. How big of a capacity do you need? You'd need really quite a high capacity. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. It, it, it's really not very nice. Yeah. The CIA build a sex griffin for Kanye West. Kanye West? <laughs> sex griffin? Need yeah. a sex griffin? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, like like a kind of griffin harpy thing. Like the thing from the cover of his album. And then they... And he flies that in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, because Grant Abel is deranged. Limited. Yeah, well, it's in that very controlled way. Like, you know, it's... he's never quite off the hook, and that's terrifying. Because this is someone else's so far beyond the hook, he's lost the hook entirely, and you know, he's still restraining Fucking himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, that's he's terrifying. Still, he's still behaving. Sex Griffin. 
Yeah. Dog jizz cheese. Yeah. There's, there's wow. some fairly wrong stuff about Iggy Pop and a sort of Beano-esque, Beano-esque comic strip about Morrissey and his hard of hearing driver. <laughs> Fuck. Um, Which is not quite as good as the time where um, I think it was Viz ran an Ua Morrissey cartoon in the style of uh, Ua Wally. Mm. And uh, every everyone, I can't remember if there was more than one, but I seem to remember there being more than one. It always ended up with Morrissey ruining his trousers and getting told off by his mum because he shoved a load of daffodils up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we started we started quite high. I should probably say something about American Splendor so it sounds like I don't just read really awful things that happen to have music, musicians in them but this is a thing that's on my reading pile at the moment but haven't got to yet my sister's a gigantic fan we probably should have got her in for this it features a lot of sort of record collecting mm. which is another aspect and Ghost World has that as well a lot of the yeah. sort of yeah artsy late 20th century American comics have record collecting as a focus generally because they're written by and for nerds the sort of of disaffected middle-aged men for whom record collection is a sort of natural hobby that sounded harsher than I meant it to but um, mine wasn't great either there's a there's a a sorry nerds amount of self-reflection in that picture your future yeah, Robert Crumb collects records as well, and he's a terrible human being. He's also written a, a history of country and blues. Interesting. Um, series of portraits by him of, of bluesmen, and uh, I think him and his band doing some of the uh, uh, some, yes, of, some of the songs on the CD. CD. Hmm. It's a nice little passion. It's one of the. I, I think oh it might God! Be, Is might it big? Passion. No, no. It's, okay. It's a normal size book. It's okay. not like one of those Tashin books you could kill three people with. Yeah, that's what I think of when I think Tashin. Yeah. Oh, it's nice. Nice. Roger jizzing and murdering at the same time. It doesn't have any of the dog stuff that. that yeah, but Roger the, jizz cheese isn't better than dog jizz cheese, is it? I don't even I don't know what qualities you're looking for in an answer to that. I think that should just Bouquet. be the end of the podcast. I think it should be the end of the podcast in a, in a more final sense than you're thinking. <laughs> um, we've talked some right old shit today. Some right old shit. Should we should we leave our tender listeners with that? With the jizz cheese. Do you feel the editors need to wrap up on something that isn't jizz cheese. I do, I do feel... Fight those compulsions. I try, I try not to editorialise too heavily, but I would rather end on something that isn't the words jizz cheese. Learn to, look, this is music. Learn to love the imperfect case. You don't know what music is. No, no. It's not jizz cheese. M- music is practice and refinement. You're talking about jazz. Cheese. on the podcast, the time you racist in general, it just keeps happening.